Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And I'd like to talk about an adventure myself, an adventure in good eating. It begins with a good wine, Petri California Sauterne. You just serve that Petri Sauterne the next time you have fried chicken. You like fried chicken? Cooked so it's crispy and a beautiful reddish gold color on the outside and just oh, just as tender as all get out on the inside. Ah, that's chicken. But wait till you try it with Petri Sauterne. That's a wine. That Petri Sauterne is a pale, delicate, golden color. You can just look at it and you know it's going to be one of the most delicious wines you've ever tasted, if not the most delicious. Petri Sauterne is not only wonderful with chicken, it's, it's great with fish or any kind of seafood, too. Get a bottle of Petri Sauterne. When it's a Petri wine, it's a good wine. And now I'm sure Dr. Watson's expecting us, so let's go in and join him. Come in, come in, come in. Ah, there you are, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening. Drop your chair by the fire. That's it. The tobacco's in the jar beside you over there. Thanks. Well, Doctor, all ready for tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell. Though on this occasion, I'm going to tell the story a little differently. You see, I didn't take part in it myself, so I shall act as a narrator and recount the adventure as it was told me some years after it actually took place. Told you by Sherlock Holmes, I suppose. Yes. At the time the story happened, the whole world, including myself, believed that my old friend had been dead for three years. What did he do with himself during those three years, Doctor? Wandered about the world, Persia, Egypt, the south of France, and two years of his time was spent in Tibet, where he disguised himself as a Norwegian explorer by the name of Sergeson, his object being to visit the forbidden city of Lhasa. The story began as Holmes stood on the outskirts of a tiny encampment, high in the Tibetan snows, disguised as a Norwegian Sergeson. Surrounding him was an excited group of, of native guides, their fur-capped faces and shaggy sheepskin coats, making them appear like strange, wild animals, as they were gesticulating wildly. The freezing wind whirled great clouds of snow away from the mountaintop that loomed above them. And Holmes told me that he felt a premonition of impending disaster. My men will go no further. They say the goddess of the mountain is angry. If we climb further, she will swallow us up. She will bury us. But we cannot go back now. We have come so far, a thousand feet, eight hundred feet higher. We shall reach the pass. We shall be safe. I will not go. We can stay back there in the tents until the goddess of the mountain tells us we may go further. He is right. We can go. We don't want to go anymore. It's too... Fools! If you stay here in the wilderness, in the village, and the avalanche comes, you will all be buried. 
You will be swept away. The only road lies upward. We will not go. was the only one who survived. He struggled up the pass that led to safety, the icy gale whipping round him in a, in a frenzy. A few moments after he reached the top, the avalanche occurred. The tents, the guides, and all their equipment were buried beneath hundreds of feet of hurtling, thundering snow. The way behind him was closed, he could only forge ahead. Alone, unaided, he descended the pass that led to the plateau beyond. But the goddess of the mountain was still angry. Through the knifing wind and snow he battled on, without food and without, as he told me later, much hope. Even Holmes was helpless in that battle of man against the elements. What happened in that 36 hours, he never really knew, except that the wind howled and the driving snow slashed at him without mercy. Finally, his mind began to wander, and he became delirious. Watson, dear boy, hand me my violin, will you? Mariotti, I want to introduce to you the goddess of the mountain. I think you will have a lot in common. 221 B Baker Street, Clavier, for heaven's sake, get me as fast as you can. I think I've caught a chill. Though his mind was wandering, his strength combined with instinctive urge for self-preservation must have kept on his feet. But finally, he returned to normal consciousness to find himself jogging along a rough road in a primitive cart drawn by two oxen, the sun shining on him and a white girl feeding him warm broth from a cup. For a moment, the girl looked at him with a comforting smile, and then she spoke. No wonder you look puzzled, poor man. You can't make up mind whether you're in this world or the next. Who are you? And how did I get here, please? My name is Eileen Farley. I'm a medical missionary. I found you wandering out of your mind two days ago. And I've taken you under my wing. We're going to the monastery of Pancha Pushpa. I'm most grateful to you, Miss Farley. You have saved my life. Permit me to introduce myself. My name is Sigerson, Olaf Sigerson. I'm a Norwegian explorer. <laughs> oh, no. No, your name is Sherlock Holmes, and you're a famous English detective. Please, I don't understand you. Mr. Holmes, you've been delirious for the last two days. In your ravings, I was delighted to learn that the great Sherlock Holmes did not die two years ago at the Reichenbach Falls. I can see that further simulation is useless, my dear young lady. However, I must implore you to keep my secret. It's essential that for a while longer, the world continues to think me dead. You don't need to worry, Mr. Holmes. I'm a great admirer of yours, and I promise that no one will ever learn your secret from my lips. Try drinking a little more broth. You're uh, dreadfully weak. Thank you, sir. Help me, please! Please, give me help. Another white man travels the road to Pancha Pushpa. Stop the cart. You need help? Ah! Ah, my own cart has broken the wheel. We're going perhaps to the monastery of Pancha Pushpa. We are. Ah, good. Pyotr Dmitrievich Borodin, Imperial Russian envoy, will travel with you. Uh, please to make room. Uh, as possible. Uh, remember my secret. Uh, the cart may proceed. Panimoesh. Ah, your name, please, young lady. Eileen Farley. I'm an American medical missionary. Well, I do not approve of missionaries, but uh, you are very beautiful. So Borodin will forgive you. 
Who's this magic lying on the floor? He looks half dead. I am half dead, Grosbodin Borodin. My name is Sigerson. I am Norwegian. What is a Norwegian doing in Tibet? I have been exploring the mountains. And what, may I ask, is a Russian doing in Tibet, Gospodin Borodin? What is a Russian doing? <laughs> you shall see, my friend. To Holy Mother Russia shall belong Tibet. But now let us be gay. We have some hours ahead of us. You uh, like vodka, Miss Violet? I'm afraid I don't drink. <laughs> Borodin will teach you to drink. <laughs> then he will sing you songs of his native Russia. Uh, we shall be happy. <laughs> Singing. Holmes told me that every note jarred his aching, weary head. After a few hours, the strangely assorted trio arrived at the gates of the monastery, an edifice, as Holmes told me, of great antiquity and of breathtaking beauty and built in the shadow of a giant mountain. He was fed and bathed, and shortly afterwards, he found himself together with his two companions in the presence of the head abbot himself, a man of great age and infinite wisdom. The faint chanting of religious music could be heard coming from another part of the monastery. As the old man spoke... <laughs> my dear Miss Farley, my dear gentlemen, I have welcomed you to the monastery, and yet... Each one of you has come to me separately and asked that he be given permission to go to the sacred city of Lhasa. I cannot give that permission, my children. Borodjin has traveled a long way. Russia will be most unhappy if he does not get the permission. I am an explorer, Reverend Sir. Will not that fact entitle me to some consideration? I, too, have traveled a great way, sir. My children, I realize your claims, but the permission is not in my power to grant. Tibet is ruled by our Chinese overlords. In any case, I will ask you to turn your heads. The gentleman approaching us has preceded you in residence here. He also wishes to tread the road to Lhasa. You have new visitors, I see. Yes, my son. Permit me to introduce you. Sir Harvey Forrester, and this is Miss Eileen Farley. How do you do? How do you do, Sir Harvey? Gospodine Borodin from Russia. How do you do? One cannot travel the world without meeting an Englishman. God we push it, Watsi. And Mr. Olaf Siegerson from Norway. God dark, Sir Harvey. How do you do? Please be seated. My children, the Chinese ruler in this province has heard of your presence here. He has announced his intention of visiting you. Before he arrives, I should like to ask you each a question. Four of you, all from different countries, have traveled here to the mountains of Tibet. At this monastery, I can offer you refreshment, the opportunity of acquiring wisdom and peace. What more do you seek in Lhasa? I shall ask you each that question in turn. You, Miss Farley, what do you seek? I seek the opportunity to bring both God and health to your Tibetan people. And you, Mr. Siegerson? I seek to chart the true course of your mountains, and so to bring knowledge to the world. And you, Gospodin Borodin? I seek to bring about complete understanding between the great peoples of Tibet and Russia. If I succeed, the Tsar and his family may consider turning to Buddhism. Indeed. 
And you, Sir Harvey, as representative of the British government, what do you seek? I shall not join in this contest of wishful things. I merely remind you, sir, that your government has signed a treaty with mine. And was not that treaty forced upon us by our Chinese overlords? No, my children. You have advanced brave reasons, but I cannot help remembering that the streams of Tibet bear gold nuggets the size of hazelnuts. You foreigners, in your pitiful ignorance, esteem gold. That signals the arrival of Watson, the Chinese emissary. Your problems will soon be settled, my children. I will acquaint him with your request. Mm. Why are you smiling, Mr. Holmes? At the name of the Chinese overlord, Watson. Must avoid falling into old habits and saying, Elementary, my dear, Watson. Shh, shh, he's going to speak. Silence! Silence! The abbot has told me your wishes. I will hold conference. American lady and Norwegian will not be allowed. Only Great Britain and Russia have treaties with my country. I insist that I have prior right over the Russian representative. George Vosme, I represent the Tsar, and Russia is your neighbor. I demand my diplomatic privilege. Follow me. I will decide the things, not you. I shall inform the British consul in Peking if proceedings. This is an insult to the Tsar. Parliament of Russia will never... Well, Mr. Holmes, it looks as if you and I, at any rate, don't get to Lhasa. No. You look worried. Does the journey to Lhasa mean so much to you? It isn't that. I'm worried about the potential danger that hangs over this monastery. Violent forces are at work. What do you mean, Mr. Holmes? As you know, Miss Farley, I have some specialized acquaintance with these matters, and I tell you that I have rarely seen more clearly exemplified that emotional tension which leads to one thing, murder. That is what I'm afraid of, young lady. Murder. That was what Holmes was afraid of. Late that day, as the sun was setting over the mountaintops, the old abbot walked slowly in the monastery gardens as he talked to the man who he thought would be Segus. Mr. Segus, and what can I do to help you? Our conversation has pleased me. You are a man of rare perception and knowledge. I grant you one worthy to enter, Lhasa, but I can offer no hope. Mr. Wa has already rejected the applications of both the Englishman and the Russian. He did that, he did my son. He told me they were both very angry and threatened him. If anything were to, uh, to happen to the Chinese emissary, would you have the right to grant permission for the journey to Lhasa? Yes, until the new envoy arrived from Peking. But what are you suggesting, my son? This monastery is a haven of peace, a backwater far from the troubled stream of life. No violence has ever occurred here. I hope it never will, yet... The Chinese envoy was threatened, you say, Reverend Sir? Yes, my son. He has left the monastery, of course. No, those who come here, even for a short visit, must break bread with us and sleep at least one night. Mr. Wa is quartered in the cell you see before us. Then do you mind if we call on him, Reverend Sir? Of course not, my son, though you will waste your breath in talking to him. He will not give you permission to take the road to Lhasa. He sleeps, my son. Let us not disturb him. If you don't mind, Reverend Sir, I must waken him. If he can be wakened. What can be wrong? I think I know. I'm going in. There is your answer, Reverend Sir. He is dead. Yes, sir. 
strangled with his own cue. Oh, the poor misguided man has taken his own life, my son. No, sir. Look at those marks on his shoulder. He has been murdered. But what are we to do? As it happens, Reverend Sir, I've had a certain amount of experience with these matters in my, in my own country. If I were to produce the murderer for you with certain proof of his guilt, would you authorize my going to Lhasa? Yes, since for a few days that mission is mine to give, I will grant it. You fill me with a strange confidence, but how will you find this taker of life? I can't tell you now, sir, but I shall find him. All that I require is a little assistance from you, sir. Of course. What is it? Let us both leave the cell, post a guard here, and give him strict orders that no one is to enter and is accompanied by me. Very well. But, my son, where are you going? Before very long, sir, I hope to be on my way to Lhasa. <laughs> Dr. Watson will tell us the rest of his story immediately, so I'll just take a second to remind you that hamburgers, yep, hamburgers, are practically an all-American food. We all love a good hamburger, but wait till you taste a juicy hamburger together with a glass of Petri California Burgundy. Boy, that Petri Burgundy is a hearty red wine that's just the best friend a hamburger or, or steak or any kind of meat dish ever had. So remember, if you want a red wine for dinner, you want Petri Burgundy. If you prefer a white wine... You want Petri so turned. And if you can't make up your mind which you want, it's simple. Don't buy one, buy two. But always buy Petri. P-E-T-R-I. Petri. Well, Dr. Watson, it seems to me that Sherlock Holmes was in a tough spot. There he was, thousands of miles from England. A murderer was running loose. Holmes was in disguise. And he hadn't got you to help him on the case. Oh, thank you, Mr. Bartell. I must say, I think that I always was useful to my old friend. But I, I wasn't there. So this time he enlisted the services of Eileen Farley, the American girl. Immediately after he'd left the cell of the murdered man, he'd gone to Miss Farley and told her of the tragedy. As they returned to the scene of the crime, he found that his instructions had been carried out and that a guard was barring the entrance to the dead man's cell. There's a guard in front of the cell. My instructions. The abbot gave you your orders. Yes, you may go in. Please close the door behind us. I'm sure your nerves are up to this, Miss Farley. It's not a pretty sight. I've seen sudden death before, Mr. Holmes. In any case, I would dare appear frightened. I'm so flattered that you asked me to help you. You were the only one who knew my true identity. That's why I suggested that you take my old friend's place. I need, what shall I say? I needed uh, a sounding, sounding board for my deductions. Wait a minute, here. I'll light a match. There we are. Now, here's a candle. <gasps> oh! I warned you it wasn't a pretty sight. Hold the candle, will you please, Miss Farley? Thank you. <gasps> this isn't hard to reconstruct. Killer stood behind his victim, held him by the left shoulder. So, wound his cue around his neck and pulled back. Yes, yes. The marks are self-evident. Hello. What's this on the floor? His feet. A cigarette. Dropped as it was burning, I should think. And now it's nothing but ash. Exactly, ash. Now, which of the visitors at the monastery smoke cigarettes? Uh, yourself? The Russian and Sir Harvey, the Englishman. I think we may justifiably omit myself from the list of suspects, so that narrows us down to two. Look, Miss Farley. What is it? There are clear traces here to the naked eye, not only of tobacco, ash, and paper, but of, of cardboard. But what does that signify, Mr. Holmes? But the case is nearly solved. Come on, young lady. We must pay a visit to Borodin's cell at once. <laughs> Argue, 
always, Sir Harvey Forrester, you give me the argument. But, my dear Borodini... I am not your dear Borodini. I'm Pyotr Dmitrovich Borodini, ambassador of Holy Mother Russia. I'm no friend of yours. Come in, come in, come in. Ah, the missionary girl and the sick Norwegian. Come in. We will drink vodka, and I will sing Russian songs for you. We haven't come here to listen to songs. The Chinese envoy was murdered tonight. So we have been told, my dear. Sir Harvey and I are very happy because of his death, are we not? Well, I won't pretend I'm heartbroken. Rasputin Borodin. What is it, Norwegian? You were in the cell tonight at the time of the murder. Huh? That's a lie. I can prove it. In that cell, I've just found ashes, a totally burned cigarette, ashes that included fragments of cardboard. Only a Russian cigarette has a cardboard mouthpiece. What you can or cannot prove is of no interest to me, Sigerson. He's very obstinate tonight, Sigerson. We've just been having a political argument. Couldn't agree on a single point, except on the danger of the common man. He was telling me of the most extraordinary revolution in his estates. Do you know they chop off one of his hands? How dreadful. Your hand, Borodin. Which, which one? Uh, as God was merciful, uh, my left hand. Then the one beneath your glove? He's made of wax, my good Norwegian. He's made of wax. Mercy for yourself. Extraordinary. It's more than that. It is conclusive proof. What do you mean, Mr. Seekers? I cannot tell you now. I must leave you here. Let me warn you, the three of you will be well advised to keep an eye on each other. Meanwhile, I must see the abbot. Why, Mr. Seekers? Because now I know who murdered Vatsun. of dawn are stealing across the mountain top, my son. Soon you will be on your way to Lhasa. Yes, Reverend Sir. You have kept your promise. You kept yours, Mr. Sigerson. The Chinese soldiers have arrived and the taker of life has been given into their custody. Before you leave, my son, I want you to do something for me. Anything, Reverend Sir. What is it? The hood figure in the corner is that of the monastery scribe. He keeps our annals. I want you to explain for our records how you knew which one of the three was the taker of life. It was not difficult, sir. The killer had gripped Vatsun's shoulder with the left hand while right was used to strangle him. Therefore, the Russian Borodin could not be the killer since his left hand was artificial. Quite so. It was, as you told me, made of wax. Then... But the clue of the cigarette pointed directly to the Russian. Therefore, it had obviously been planted there deliberately to incriminate him. Now, there is no trained police force in Tibet. We need no police. There is no crime here, my son. But continue. Why should the cigarette be planted to incriminate the Russian? Unless there was someone capable of making the deduction from a handful of cigarette ash. Therefore, the murderer was the one person who knew my true identity. Miss Eileen Farley, supposed missionary. No missionary, as it transpired when she confessed. No American. No Secret Service agents of America, of German origin, seeking to reach Lhasa before the Russians, and infuriated by Watson's denial of passage. Any Secret Service is better off without such employee. She will pay for her mortal sins. May she redeem herself in her next place on the wheel. My son. Yes, Reverend Sir. You are about to leave me, and I shall never see you again. Though evil and death 
came to Panchapushpa and to my monastery in the caravan that brought you here. I shall miss you, my son. I shall miss you greatly. And I you, Reverend Sir. Would you consider staying here? I can only offer you peace, a shelter from the outside world, and quiet companionship. Ah, three great gifts. But I cannot take them. My work is not done. I must go on. Of course, my son. It was an old man's dream. One last question. What is it, sir? You spoke of your true identity just now. Who are you, my son? Reverend sir, I cannot tell even you the answer to that question. One day, perhaps, but not now. Let us just say that I have wandered through a world of trouble, just as you have remained tranquil in a world of peace. I hope, sir, that we shall meet again. I hope so, too. Goodbye, my son. Goodbye, Reverend Sir. Goodbye. That was really an unusual story. You told it so well, I, I felt you were actually a part of it. No, my boy, as I said, the story was told to me by Holmes. I, I've never been to Tibet. Been to India, of course. I never really wanted to go to Tibet. Horrible mountains, terrible weather, lots of bandits on the roads. Sort of a da dangerous place. Uh, doctor, you're not afraid of danger, are you? Ten years ago, Mr. Bartell, a question like that had been insult. Today I realize that all of us, unless we're stupid, have some fear of danger. I would say that I'm definitely not a coward, nor am I a thrill-seeker, but uh, I've done with searching for, uh, for something new. Me too, Doctor. I'm through searching for something new also. Now that I've found Petri wine, I'm going to stick to it. Mr. Bartell, no matter what we talk about, when you say it, it always sounds like Petri wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? I can't think of a more delicious wine, and no wonder. The Petri family has been making the fine Petri wine for generations. Ever since the 1800s, they've handed on down from father to son, from father to son, the fine art of turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. And because the making of Petri wine is a family affair, you can rest assured that the Petri family takes pride in doing a good job. They won't put that name Petri on any wine that isn't up to the high Petri standard. Yes, if it's Petri wine, you know it's good wine. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes adventure do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, uh, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a story that started off in a very light-hearted way and ended on the same note. And yet it involved Sherlock Holmes and myself in serious danger and caused us intense humiliation. I call it the Adventure of the Pigeon Feathers. It sounds swell, Doctor. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And before you go, I want to remind the families of our returned veterans that their sons are more than heroes. They not only fought bravely, but in the armed forces they acquired new skills, learned or bettered themselves in some trade or furthered their education. Our men have returned with a new maturity and a new wisdom. They'll be more valuable to past or to future employers and more valuable to their country. 
The greatest assets America has at this moment are her veterans. Remember that. Good night. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by and in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Empty House. Music is by Dean Foster. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, but now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Fetri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday night on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. In 1945, I considered myself a very lucky man because I was the announcer on The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. My name is Harry Bartell. Won't you join me now as I reminisce about those wonderful days of dramatic radio? Glenn Hall Taylor was the producer of the show. He was the Young and Rubicam representative, Young and Rubicam being the advertising agency for Petri Wines. And Edna Best, in the season that I was on the show as, a, as the announcer, was the director. So that uh, Glenn Hall would provide commercial material and so forth for Edna's use, and then Edna directed the show in the booth. She was the one who made all the line changes, all the timing uh, changes, all the cuts, and so forth. I know that Glenn Hall, I think, directed it one year. I got the Sherlock Holmes show by accident. I came over to CBS Studios on Sunset Boulevard one day to rehearse for another show. And the lobby was loaded with announcers. Practically every announcer in Hollywood was there. I couldn't figure out what was going on, and as a secretary came out with her list and said, George or Sam or whoever, I said, what's going on here? And she said, they're announcing, uh, auditioning, rather, for a new show. And I said, who's holding the audition? I said, Edna Best. Edna Best was a lovely, lovely lady. I had worked with her on other shows. And I said, if she has a moment, let me sneak into the studio, if you don't mind, just to say hello, and I'll come right back out. She said, I'll ask. So she came out a little later and said, you can go in for just a second. I went in, stepped in front of the microphone, which was set up in the studio, and said, Edna, I came in to say hello. Hello, bye-bye. And I started to leave. And she said, aren't you going to read? And I said, well, no, I hadn't planned to read. She said, well, as long as you're here, read anyway. So she gave me the copy that they were auditioning. And I said, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to see you again. And I left, never dreaming that I would ever get it because there were big-name announcers, the Ken Carpenters, the Ken Niles, the Wendell Niles, a whole bunch of them. And sure enough, I got a call, and that's how I wound up on the show, because I happened to be in CBS at that time. Petri Wine brings you... 
Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting story about his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And I'd like to tell you something that maybe you already know. The fact that America's favorite wine is port wine. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, you'll know why port is the way out front favorite if you'll just sample some Petri California port. You just look at that Petri port and you know it's good. That wonderful, deep, rich red color. And Petri port is so clear. Well, just hold it to the light and you can sort of see right through the glass. But what you really want to know about a wine is how does it taste? And I'll tell you something, I, I've never yet been able to find the adjective that'll do Petri port justice. It's wonderful, honest. You just got to taste it for yourself and find out for yourself. You love that Petri port in the evening after dinner when you're sitting around listening to the radio. And it's perfect to serve your friends when they come over. Oh, and you can show that Petri label, too. In fact, you can show it proudly. Because the name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines. And now I'm sure our old friend Dr. Watson's ready for us, so let's go in and join him. Come in, come in, come in. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Good evening, Doctor. <laughs> well, the puppies seem very happy tonight. Yeah, tonight, yes, but you should have seen them this afternoon. I doubt if there were two more frightened little dogs in the whole of California. Well, enough. Marty, control yourself. What happened, Doctor? Well, I took them for a walk on the beach. As we were scrambling round a rocky point, a seal popped his head up in the water quite close to us. What'd the puppies do? Oh, both of them barked at it furiously. And the seal? Blew a few bubbles and then barked right back. <laughs> I don't know what the world's speed record is for short-legged dogs, but I'm sure they broke it. <laughs> you know, Doctor, I'll have to join you on one of those afternoon strolls of yours. You always seem to be having such exciting adventures. Oh, and talking of that, how's about tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Well, I'm all ready for you, my boy. In fact, I was looking over my notes on the case just before you arrived. This is another story in which Sherlock Holmes' elder brother, Mycroft, played an important part. Mycroft Holmes was seven years older than Sherlock, and some said it is superior in powers of observation and deduction. That sounds like heresy, Doctor. No, 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 young fellow, my lad. Holmes himself was the first to admit it. In fact, if it hadn't been for his incurable laziness, Mycroft could have been a formidable rival to his younger brother. However, Mycroft did hold a position of considerable importance at the Foreign Office, and it was there tonight's story begins. It was in the winter of 1899, and Mycroft Holmes, after a gourmet's lunch, was reclining full length on a leather settee. His eyes were closed, his hands were folded across his stomach, and his breath came rhythmically. A cynic would have declared that Mycroft Holmes was taking an after-luncheon snooze, but Mr. Holmes' secretary, a gentleman by the name of Gardner, was a realist. He tapped on the door discreetly. Then he rapped on it. And still there was no response, so he opened the door and entered. After a moment, he gave what he thought was a discreet cough. <coughs> Mycroft Holmes opened his eyes and folded his hands and said, Confound it, Gardner. Must you come in here and bark at me so soon after lunch? I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes, 
But I thought that... You the... thought that as I was lying down with my eyes closed that I must be bored, and so you came galloping in. Oh. Well, what do you want? There's an old lady outside, sir. She insists on seeing you personally. I've tried to get rid of her, but... What's her she... name? Mrs. Hudson, sir. Mrs. Hudson? Huh. Show her in, Gardner. Show her in. Very good, sir. Undoubtedly a message from young Sherlock. How are you, Mrs. Hudson? Oh, good day, Mr. Holmes. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I won't take up much of your time. Sit down, won't you? Don't leave us, Gardner. I may need you in a few minutes. Very good, sir. Now, Mrs. Hudson, what's the message? Message, sir? Didn't my brother send you with some message that he was afraid to entrust to the ordinary channels? He's always so confounded and dramatic. Oh, bless your heart. No, sir. I I've come to you with a little problem of my own. I didn't like to bother Mr. Sherlock Holmes with it. He's been so busy lately, and, and he's looking very tired. And so you came to me. Delightful. I thought you wouldn't mind, sir. You've always been so nice and friendly to me. Pure laziness. It is less effort to keep an old friend than to make a new enemy. But tell me your problem. Well, it, it's really my sister's problem, sir. She keeps a boarding house at 14 Kensington Garden Square in Bayswater. And she's convinced that one of her boarders, a, a man who has a room on the first floor back, she's convinced that he's a birdman. And what in heaven's name is a birdman? Do you know, Gardner? No, sir. I can't imagine. Oh, it's like a werewolf, gentlemen, except that the man turns into a bird. Oh, come now, Mrs. Hudson. Oh, I know it sounds daft, but my sister's in a dreadful state. Of course, I've been with your brother long enough, sir, to know that such things are nonsense. But how can I prove it to her? What reason does your sister give for holding a strange belief? She keeps finding pigeon feathers in the room. Now, the man doesn't keep pigeons, sir. My sister knows that for a fact. Has she found any traces of scattered food on the window ledge? None, sir. No signs of any pigeons, except the feathers. My sister's a wee bit fay, Mr. Holmes. She's the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter, and you know what that means. Just the same, she's not imagining things, sir. She's shown me the feathers herself. Where were they, Mrs. Hudson? Somewhere on the floor by the end of the bedstead, sir. I, I brought some along with me. Yes, sir. And we found some more in the gentleman's cupboard where he keeps his clothes. By George, I wonder well, what if... What is it, sir? I'll tell you in a moment, Gardner. Uh, Mrs. Hudson, this matter will require a little private investigation. You may return to your sister and tell her not to worry. I shall get in touch with you as soon as my inquiries are completed. Good day to you. Good day, sir. And I'm very much obliged to you. Well, Gardner, what do you make of it? An old wives' tale, sir. You're not treating it seriously, are you? Yes, I am. One of these feathers shows evidence of having had string tightened round it. That suggests a captive bird. Now, a captive bird smuggled into an obscure boarding house would point to something of the greatest importance to us, Gardner. By George, sir. You mean carrier pigeons? Exactly. And remember that we're at war and that the Boers have obtained several important and highly confidential secrets of ours lately. We know there's a leak somewhere. This requires an active investigator who can work with discretion. Now, I could work with discretion, but uh, I don't feel too active at the moment. <laughs> ah, I have it. I want you to write this letter to my brother. Disguise your hand, use plain, cheap notepaper, and don't sign the letter. He won't be able to resist that combination. Are you ready, Gardner? Yes, sir. Very well, then. Uh, my dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, uh, we know of your proposed investigation of the tenant in the first floor back at uh, 14 Kensington Gardens Square. 
We warn you, as you value your life, keep away from the We warn you, as you value your life, to keep away from the case. And that, my dear Watson, is why we are driving towards 14 Kensington Garden Square, disguised as building inspectors of the London County Council. Well, I must say, it's a very challenging letter, Holmes. Unsigned, yes. I notice. Written on cheap note paper and in a disguised hand. No clue there, I'm afraid. Well, we're, we're entering the square, Holmes. Yeah. Let's stop the cab here. Uh, you can drop us here, cabbie. All right, you are, Governor. It would seem a little incongruous in these costumes for us to arrive in a cab. Yes, I suppose so. Here you are, cabbie. Oh, thank you, Governor. Supposing this mysterious tenant to the first floor back should be in his room when we get there. Then we must hope that our disguises are convincing and keep our wits about us. This may be a trap. Yes, just what I was going to say. After all, you've never heard of 14 Kensington Garden Square until you received an unsigned letter two hours ago warning you to keep away from it. I don't like the look of it. There we are, number 14. I suggest that you let me do most of the talking. <laughs> Good Lord, yes. My cockney accent doesn't compare with yours. Who do you want to see? Uh, we're from the London County Council. We are. We've had complaints about a leaky gas jet in the uh, first floor back. Oh, that's Mr. Green's room. He ain't home. Oh, that don't matter, my dear. We'll go up and take a look. Come on, Bertie. Right, right you are, Alfie. Want me to show you the way? The missus is out shopping. No, thanks, dearie. Me and Bertie can't get lost, can we, Bertie? No, of course we can't. <laughs> of course we can't. <laughs> oh, look at him laughing. <laughs> uh, come on, Bertie. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. Oh, I do like to be beside the sea. Dilly um pa pum pa pum, dilly um pa pum pa pum. Nice ass, Bertie, ain't it? Yes, Elf. Nice ass can be, this ass. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside there. Uh, I do like to be beside us. There we are. First full back. Better make sure the bloke ain't home. Oh, I do like to no, be no, beside us. No, no, he ain't home, Alfie. Huh? No, well, all right, let's go in. This is the mysterious room, eh? Well, it looks perfectly ordinary, doesn't it? Yes, a depressing example of the squalor of boarding house life. Hello. What's this on the bedspread? Feathers. Must have come out of the pillow. No. He's a pigeon's feathers, old chap. And look here, Watson. Attached to the bed rail. No, it's only a piece of string. String, yes, but... With a small metal ring on the end. A ring such as is used to place around a homing pigeon's leg. But why should someone keep carrying pigeons in an obscure boarding house like yes, this? Why indeed, why indeed? The answer could be that the tenant of his room is engaged in some sinister activity that requires the use of carrier pigeons in sending messages. Yes, there's no evidence of the birds being kept here. That's true, old fellow, that's true. Uh, possibly the owner of this room is given to... is given a pigeon by one of his superiors, brings it here, affixes his message, and releases the bird. But why couldn't he just take the message to where they keep the birds? Well, in that way, he would run the risk of being picked up with... Uh, Dangerous and incriminating messages on well, What kind of skullduggery involves the use of carrier pigeons, you suppose? We're at war with the Boers in South Africa, Watson. What could be more logical than that a spy in their pay should be using this method to smuggle important information out of the country? Right, Jovia, Holmes. I wouldn't mind betting... Shh! The... Somebody coming. Look out. Who are you? What the devil do you think you're doing in my room? Well, my name's Bertram, and I come here to look at your gas pipes. No, don't lie to me. Who are you? It's like I say, Gabner. My name's Bertram, and I come from the Lundy Council. Uh, very well, then. If you 
you won't tell me the truth, perhaps this revolver will make you change uh, your mind. Look here, Captain. Look it's here, Captain. Grab his revolver, Watson. Yes. Right. Holmes, where were you? I slipped behind the door as this gentleman opened it. Yeah, me, sir. Your overcoat seems extraordinarily well filled with chest, doesn't it? Why not slip it off? Yes. It's a bit warm in here. Ah, let me alone. Joe, so you were right, Holmes. He had a pigeon under his coat. Yeah, uh, yes. See if you can catch the bird, will you, old chap? All right, here. Come on, Pidgey. Pidgey, come on. Come on, little fella. Come along, Pidgey. There he comes. That's it. <laughs> Look at the little fella. Snuggled up on my arm. Friendly little fellow, isn't he? Yes, I... Look out, Watson. The gentleman's revolver. Yes, He's going after when it. I get it, I'll... Oh. A beautiful uppercut, Holmes. I'm, uh... I'm afraid he'll be unable to talk to us for some time. How fortunate he told us where the message was hidden before we indulged in this little set, too. What do you too. mean? He didn't say anything about a message? No, not verbally. But I was watching his reflection in the mirror as he entered the room. His eyes first glanced at this top drawer on the dresser here to see if we touched it. It was obviously the most important spot in the room. Let's see. Ah, uh -huh. here we are. A message already rolled up and in its container. Oh? What does it say, Holmes? It's in code, which is not surprising, but I don't think it will be very difficult to decipher. Yes, and when you've done that? Then, my dear fellow, I shall compose a code message of my own and persuade this pigeon to lead us to its master. I can see from your puzzled expression, Watson, that you're wondering why I brought you to Dexter's Music Hall in the Edgware Road. Well, I must confess, I'm a little confused, Holmes. First of all, we go to Baker Street and you spend hours poring over some obscure book, and you write out a message, attach it to a pigeon, and let it loose. Now you bring me here. I hate to question you when you're working, but I should be glad if you'd give me some idea of what's going on. Of course, old chap. At times, I must seem confoundedly mysterious, I'm sure. Here's the situation. The obscure book I was studying was a table of ciphers. I was trying to decode the message we found in the room on the first floor well, back. Well, obviously you succeeded or we wouldn't be here. Yes, the key word was Louis Botha, the name of the Boer leader. The message was a report on the number of troops now in training at Aldershot. Then you were right. We are mixed up with a ring of enemy agents. Obviously, old chap. So I kept the original message and composed another using the same code and dispatched it by carrier pigeon. Well, what did you say in your message? Meet me tonight, 8 o'clock, table number 3 at Dexter's Music Hall. What made you choose this place as a rendezvous? Well, I happen to know that it's a common meeting place for underworld characters. And which is table number 3? The one over there in the corner. I reserved it. Then why don't we go and sit down there instead of standing it here at the back of I thought we'd give our visitor the opportunity of showing his hand first. He won't be expecting Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, I fancy. Yeah. Good Lord, look at this woman coming on to sing. Do you ever see so many fellows? Not allowed to ever bow, except upon the sky. So yesterday he came and took me walking through the Holmes. line. Holmes, look, look. A man just sitting down at table number three. What's Sid Trimble. Sid Trimble, who's he? A dangerous criminal who once worked for the Moriarty gang. We've caught a prize pigeon, Watson. Better have your revolver handy, old chap. Undoubtedly, he'll recognize us. Right, you are, Holmes. Come on, then. Maggie! 
that in the clover that I tremble seems morn. Go and get drawers and the Maggie to the old. I'm so glad you're able to keep your appointment, sir. Sherlock Holmes. This is a trap. Oh, don't try any tricks. I've got a revolver here, Sid. How'd you like this table in your face? <laughs> Watson, you didn't shoot him, did you? No, no, he knocked my hand. The revolver went off. I... The shot went well. I swear it did. Yes, of course. Look at the wound. There are no powder burns. The shot was fired from some distance. Holmes. Holmes, he's... He's dead. Out of the way. Out of the way, please. Now then, what's going on here? Uh, Constable, this man has been killed. Yes, and it's easy to see who did it. Well, I didn't do it, Constable, if that's what you're thinking. No? Then why are you standing here with a smoking revolver in your hand? Come on, you. You're under arrest. But you can't arrest me. I'm Dr. Watson, and this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I don't care if you're the King of Siam and the Bishop of London himself. You're under arrest, and I'm taking you both to Scotland Yard. <laughs> You'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a second. And if you don't mind, I'll take that second to say just one word to the ladies. And that word is muscatel. Petri California muscatel. I want you women to know about it because Petri muscatel is one wine that practically every woman likes. Maybe because it's such a beautiful color, like, well, like pale gold. But I guess really because Petri Muscatel brings you the wonderful flavor of luscious, sun-ripened Muscat grapes. And that's a flavor. Try Petri Muscatel after dinner or anytime as a change from Petri Port. Have a bottle of each on hand. When you buy Petri wine, don't buy one, buy two. Remember, if it's a Petri wine, you know it's a good wine. Dr. Watson, that was really one for the books. So you got yourself arrested on a murder charge. Yes, Mr. Bartell. It's a very humiliating experience. I was taken off to Scotland Yard in the Black Marat. Looks like any common criminal. The wretched constable wouldn't listen to a word that I'd got to say. Well, Sherlock Holmes went with you, of course. Naturally, but as we arrived at Scotland Yard, my mortification was complete, and I found that I was led into the presence of our old friend, Inspector Lestrade. Holmes spoke to him at some length, but I could see from Lestrade's expression my position was a very serious one. Now, can you see uh, what it is, Mr. Holmes? You see, I know you both. But I must say there are lots of them here at the yard as don't like what they call your eye-handed method. But, Lestrade, personal likes or dislikes have nothing to do with this. No, no, of course they haven't. This is purely a matter of evidence. Well, I know that, Dr. Watson. And the constable's evidence was as clear as the nose on your face. The dead man was shot through the head, and you were standing in front of the body with a drawn revolver but in your hand. But, my dear Lestrade, my dear Lestrade, there were no powder burns on the wound. Yeah, that's what you tells me, Mr. Holmes. But I'll have to wait for the official report on that. The police surgeon's examining the body now. You understand, gentlemen, I'm not saying I'm sorry that uh, Sid Trimble's dead. He's been a thorn in our side for a good many years. In fact, I... Oh, here's the uh, police surgeon now. Uh, Dr. Hendricks, uh, this is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. How do you do? How do you, How do, you do, gentlemen? I, I'm a great admirer of you both, and I'm sorry to see you in such a very unfortunate plight. Oh, thank you, thank you, Dr. Hendricks. Uh, what were your findings, Dr. Hendricks? Well, I just extracted the bullet, Lestrade, and I'm very much afraid it's the same make and caliber as the one missing from Dr. Watson's revolver. Yes, but that doesn't prove that I fired the fatal shot. 
A 45 Colt's a very common weapon, Doctor. It proves nothing. Uh, Dr. Hendricks, as I was just saying to Inspector Lestrade before you came in, the only fact that would show my friend guilty would be powder burns on the wound, thereby giving, <coughs> proving that the bullet had been fired from close range. I entirely agree with you, Mr. Holmes. Uh, then, uh, as there were no powder burns oh, on the... Oh, but there are powder burns, Mr. Holmes. What? Very distinct ones, too. Good Lord, I... Uh, well, uh, I just... I don't understand, Holmes. I'm sorry, gentlemen, huh? to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I have my duties to perform. Yes, and I'm sorry, too, Dr. Watson. Huh? I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to let you leave here. You must consider yourself under arrest. I never felt more despondent in my life. Oh, cheer up, old chap. Well, how can I? Locked up in a prisoner's cell. Looks as if I might end up at the gallows. Don't worry, Watson. You'll be out of here before the night is over. I promise oh, you that. I wish I felt as confident as you do. How do you propose to do it? Oh, with the aid of a little hard thinking. Thinking? <laughs> that won't unlock any cell doors, thinking. But it will, old fellow. It's obvious someone's deliberately trying to incriminate us. Let's try and reconstruct killing logically. Hmm? Sid Trimble was a member of an espionage ring. I sent him a false message. After he'd uh, left to keep the appointment, one of his colleagues trailed him to the music hall and killed him before he could be betray anything to us. Yes. Yes, that's undoubtedly the way it happened. But the powder burns, Holmes. How do you count for them? There were none just after the shot was fired. We know that. And yet Dr. Hendricks assures us that there are very distinct powder burns now. May we come in, gentlemen? Yes, yes, of course you can, Dr. Hendricks. Oh. Hello, Lestrade. Yes, I thought we'd come and uh, chat with you, Doctor. Well, that's, that's very nice of you, gentlemen. Yeah, not a bit of it, Doctor. You know, it, it hurts me to see you in here, and that's a fact. And I can't bear to see a fellow medico in such plight without coming in to see what I can do to help, Watson. Yeah, you're very quiet, Mr. Holmes. Am I, Lestrade? I was thinking, you see... Uh... What's no chap? I have it. You have what? The answer. You'll sleep in Baker Street tonight after all. Mr. Holmes, what are you talking the about? The murder of Sid Trumbull. The incriminating powder burns were obviously faked. Watson and I know that, whether you and Dr. Hendricks believe it or not. The question is, how were they faked? I think I have the answer. Uh, Dr. Hendricks. Yes, Mr. Holmes? If a blank cartridge were fired at the wound after death, it would produce powder burns, wouldn't it? Undoubtedly. Yeah, but uh, who could have done that, Mr. Holmes? Ah, that's the point, Lestrade. Who had the opportunity? The constable who brought the body here. True, old chap. Huh? Also, you, Dr. Hendricks. That's perfectly true. Yeah. Well, I had the opportunity, too, Mr. Holmes. I spent half an hour in the morgue alone with the body when it first came in. Well, you've narrowed it down to three suspects, Holmes. I hope I don't hang before you find the real killer. I found him, Watson. Why, what? who is he, Mr. Funny? Holmes? The answer is simple, Lestrade. The powder burns were certainly faked by a blank cartridge. Now, if a blank cartridge were fired into a wound, the uh, wadding would have penetrated and distorted the wound. Yes, but supposing the person had removed the wadding from the blank, Mr. Holmes? Its effect would still be uh, quite apparent to the police surgeon who removed the bullet. Am I correct, Dr. Hendricks? Entirely. A surgeon could not fail to identify the marks, Mr. Holmes. Exactly. Uh, therefore, only one person could have fired that blank cartridge without detection. The same person who made the incision necessary to remove the cartridge would also remove all traces of the shot. You yourself, Dr. Hendricks. Uh, Jim Holmes, I, I believe you're right. <laughs> That's an ingenious theory, Holmes. Surely you're joking. Am I? And how do you account for the pigeon fellow's feathers on the collar of your coat? Uh, I'm not... 
The devil with you, Holmes. Here, here, come back here. Hey, Doctor. Hey, uh, Constable. Don't let Doctor get killed. Great Scott. Scotland Yard itself harboring an enemy agent. Upon <laughs> my soul, Holmes, you've done it again. I must say you've got sharp eyes. I didn't see those pigeon feathers on, on Hendrick's collar. Uh, confidentially, my dear fellow, neither did I. But Hendrick's guilty conscience knew they might be there. It was a shot in the dark, and I had to take it. If you'd spent the night in, in a prison cell, I should never have heard the end of it, I'm sure. Never. I want to see Mr. Mycroft Holmes, please. Follow me, Mrs. Hudson. He's expecting you. Hi, sir. Ah, there you are, Mrs. Hudson. Come and sit down. Oh, thank you, sir. I got your message and came over right away. In the first place, Mrs. Hudson, you may tell your sister that she needn't worry any more. I'm sure she'll find no more pigeon feathers in her room on the first floor back. No, sir, thank you. But she knows the fact, because the bird man left her yesterday for good. Some strange men came and took him away. And today, she's let the room to a nice young commercial traveler. I I'm really sorry to have bothered you with her trouble, sir. I'm very glad you did, Mrs. Hudson. Thanks to your information, an enemy espionage ring has been broken, and the British government is deeply grateful to you. <laughs> you're always one for a joke, aren't you, Mr. Holmes? Well, I'm glad you're not angry with me. I'll be going now, sir. Just one more favor I'll ask before I go, though. Anything, Mrs. Hudson. What is it? Please don't tell your brother about this, sir. He'd be so angry with me for wasting your time. <laughs> Doctor, that was really a swell story tonight. Although it was a bit unexpected for you to have been arrested. Yes, indeed. Mr. Martell, uh, when you're a detective like uh, like Holmes or a, a doctor like myself, well, you've got to be prepared to meet the unexpected every once in a while. Mm, I suppose so. Of course, you wouldn't know about things like that, being a, a wine expert yourself. Oh, now, wait a minute, Doctor. From the way you talk, you'd think I spent every waking moment in a... Nice, cool wine cellar, tasting wine from morning till night. Well, don't you? <laughs> oh, now, Doctor, I'm no more a wine expert than you are. All I know about wine is that it either tastes good or it doesn't. And I know that Petri wine does taste good. And that's because the Petri family took time to make good wine. Generations of time. Why, the Petri family's been making wine ever since they started the Petri business way back in the 1800s. And since the business has always been family-owned and operated, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son, all they've ever learned about the fine art of turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. And they've learned plenty. So no matter what type of wine you want, for any occasion, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what story do you have lined up for us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a weird adventure that Sherlock Holmes and I had in the East End of London. It concerns a most unusual stage play, a badly frightened actor, and a blood-stained razor. I call it The Strange Case of the Demon Barber. <laughs>
Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Greek Interpreter. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invite you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. This is Harry Bartell. I'll be right back with another new adventure of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs>